Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. I am um, glad to be here. I, uh, I have a great deal of love for your church. And it makes me eager to be here. We've um, had many men in our church who are more competent in God's Word uh, because of the Simeon Trust that y'all put on so well. Uh, we've been fed many times at the uh, BRMA lunches. Uh, we've had both Ryan uh, and David come and fill our pulpit at Grace Bible in Sanger and have fed our church well. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'm glad to be here because I've been pastored by your pastor. Uh, your, uh, your pastor is not only a good pastor to you, he's a good pastor to me. At the end of the day, every lead pastor is also a sheep. And, uh, and your pastor has been an invaluable source to me of wisdom and experience and counsel. And uh, I have a, just a huge debt of thankfulness uh, for your pastor, um, for, for Ryan. And that makes me eager to be with you. And it makes me glad to be here to serve you uh, by preaching God's word to the best of my ability this morning. So uh, to that end, I invite you to uh, turn your Bibles, if you brought your Bible or grab one in, under the chair in front of you, to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. Um, our church has preached uh, through Philippians. We've worked through it as a church twice. And I've come to find that one of the greatest gifts that Philippians gives to the church is what I would call an earthy gospel. An earthy uh, gospel. By which uh, I mean is that when you read Philippians, you really get the sense that the gospel is not merely about the afterlife, but it's about everyday life. You really come to see when you read the book of Philippians from a man who's chained to a wall in prison awaiting his trial before Nero, you get the sense that the good news of Jesus Christ is not just a ticket to the afterlife, but is a teacher in everyday life. It's not just a message that puts the lost in heaven, but it is a message that equips the saved for earth. And so one of the ways that the gospel equips God's people to live our lives here in the present age on earth is by teaching us how to deal with anxiety. In the last chapter, chapter 4, Paul is going to bullet off six imperatives, six imperatives, and the fourth of which is going to be our focus this morning. The gospel teaches God's people how to navigate through anxiety. So uh, I invite you to stand uh, with me, if you're able. And we're going to read this morning from Philippians chapter 4, halfway through verse 5 through verse 7. Let's listen to God's word together. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask, we beg that you would tend to our hearts this morning as we tend to your word. I pray that you would strengthen the faith of your saints at Redeemer Church in Graham. Pray that your peace would stand guard protecting the saints of this church. 
that your gospel would shape the way we think and feel about the things that make us anxious. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of his kingdom, we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning holds three parts to it. Holds an exhortation, an invitation, and a promise. An exhortation, an invitation, and a promise. And we're going to consider each one of these three in turn. The first one is the exhortation. Friends, the exhortation of Philippians 4, 5 through 7 is simply this. The Lord would have his people not be anxious. The Lord would have his people not be anxious. Verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. He is present. He is near. He is coming. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord would have his people not be anxious. Um, some words in the Bible are strange to us, and they require explanation. They require exposition. Uh, anxiety is not one of those words. Anxiety is one of those Words that is actually all too familiar to us, and it hardly even needs explanation or definition. But we're going to define it anyway. Uh, the Greek word for anxiety is the word merimnao, and it means, according to the standard Greek dictionary, to be apprehensive, to have anxiety, to be anxious, to be unduly concerned, to attend to, care for, and be concerned about things. Now, John Henderson who is a counselor on staff at the University of Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, has written an excellent curriculum called Equipped to Counsel. And in the, his, uh, his book that he's published, Equipped to Counsel, he defines anxiety this way. He says, anxiety is a prolonged sensation of fear in response to a perceived threat. So this would be how anxiety is defined. But let's just be honest for a moment. You didn't need me to define anxiety for you. You know very well, and some of you even more than others, what it's like to feel the fear, what it's like for your blood pressure to increase, your heart rate to increase, to face something that's challenging and difficult that you're not sure you can make it through. Some words in the Bible, and this is one of them, require very little explanation because they're all too familiar to us. And the command comes to God's people. The Lord would have us not be anxious. Now, let's pan out for a moment. And I would have us consider what the entirety of Scripture, the whole counsel of God's word, would have to say about what Paul calls anxiety. What Paul calls anxiety here. So consider with me a few things about anxiety in the Bible. And the first one would be this, that anxiety is a normal experience in a broken world. Anxiety is a normal experience in the broken world. And it is a normal experience for people who have faith in God. And this is true in Scripture when we just scan the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find that the people, many of whom are men of great faith, all experience anxiety at some point in their life. Imagine the sleepless night for Jacob in Genesis 32. As he's anticipating meeting his brother Esau the next morning, just 32 tells us that messengers come to Jacob and they say, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. If you know the story, you know that Jacob was not eagerly anticipating this meeting. And verse 7 tells us that Jacob, Jacob, the father of Israel, was greatly afraid and distressed. How about Moses? 
Consider how Moses felt when the Lord came to him in the burning bush and said, I want you to go back to Egypt. Moses is like, I spent the last 40 years trying to forget about that place. And the Lord says, go, go back. And Moses said, I am slow of speech and tongue. Are you sure you have the right guy to go do that? Moses experienced anxiety. Anxiety is the reason Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Right? Everybody knows you thresh wheat in an open environment. Like, like Graham, Texas, where the wind can flow through without any mountains in the way. And the chaff from the wheat can be driven away. But here's Gideon in a, in a wine press. How do you thresh wheat in a wine press? He's there because of anxiety. King David. Right, The guy that like killed Goliath is said in another case. 1 Samuel 21 is said to flee to the Philistines, Goliath's own countrymen, for safety. And the text says in 1 Samuel 21 that David took the words of Achish, the king, to heart and was much afraid of the king of Gath. How about Elijah? Immediately after a great victory, he experienced anxiety after a wonderful defeat of the prophets of Baal. And it was all because he had crossed Jezebel, this queen, someone that Donald Trump might call a very, very nasty woman. Elijah crosses her. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 19 that he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, Lord, take away my life. How about Daniel? You ever spend a night in the lion's den? Daniel did. But on another occasion, Daniel is said to have experienced a sleepless night filled with anxiety. Daniel 7.15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. And even Paul. Even Paul, the guy that has written the verse that we have read and we're looking at this morning. Himself described the situation six years earlier in Ephesus. When he was completely overwhelmed. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Some of you all here know exactly what that feels like. Elsewhere, Paul in the letter in 2 Corinthians says, And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And those of you who are involved in any place of influence in the church, you know the particular anxieties that accompany those who are responsible for the souls of others. So what do these examples show us in the scripture? Uh, well, they show us that anxiety is a normal and a common experience for human beings in a broken world. We are mortals in a large and frightening cosmos. And anxiety is a normal reaction for even those with great faith in this world. And these examples, I think, do a couple of things for us that are here this morning. For some of us, these examples should humble us because they, we think the command to not be anxious is an easy one. And for others of us, these examples normalize for us an experience that many of you think is impossible for you. Anxiety is normal in a broken world. But another thing the Bible says about anxiety, albeit normal, is that anxiety is a threat to the Christian soul. Anxiety is a threat to the Christian soul. Now, now at this point, we need to recognize uh, that, that anxiety is universally disliked. 
Anxiety is universal, by, by which I mean uh, believers and unbelievers alike are, are all trying to, to beat the thing. Right? No one, no one likes anxiety. You've never met anybody, I'm willing to bet money, that you've never bet, met anybody who just said, you know, my life would just be more complete if I had just a little more anxiety in it. There's just not enough anxiety. I just feel this person would say, like, my life uh, is going well. That uh, my kids have been obedient, amazingly, all week long. Uh, my spouse adores the ground on which I tread. My job is just met with success after success after success. And I just feel like not complete as a human unless I have more anxiety. You never met anybody like that because anxiety is pervasive and everyone is trying to beat it. Believers in Christ and those who are outside of Christ are all trying to beat anxiety. However, however, when Paul says do not be anxious for anything, the Christian has a unique motivation for wanting to combat the anxiety that plagues our soul. And the reason is because anxiety, Jesus tells us, has the potential to render a person spiritually fruitless. Anxiety can render a person spiritually fruitless. You remember the parable of the soils? The Lord Jesus says the the sower goes out to sow, and the seed is sown on the soil. And there's one particular seed that falls among the thorns. And Jesus gives a handful of things that are thorns that grow up and can choke the life out of the seed of the word that's been sown. And one of those, Jesus says, are the cares of the world. The cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, and this word, the cares of the world. The word cares there in Greek is the same word, memnao, that Paul uses for anxiety here in Philippians 4. Anxiety has the potential for the Christian to render you spiritually fruitless. And Paul issues this command. Do not be anxious for anything as a command to something that is going to be a lifelong process, a lifelong learning experience for each of us. Um, this is actually embedded in the Greek. If you'll permit me to be technical for just a moment. Uh, Paul selects a very um, specific tense in Greek. He uses the present imperative here. Do not be anxious. By which he means this is going to be an ongoing, continuing process. He's not saying... Simply stop being anxious any more than he's saying, well, give prayer and supplication once in your life. No, but prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, as well as not being anxious, is something that is a habit that we learn, that the gospel inculcates in us over time. You may have seen the, uh, the Bob Newhart skit where he's, a, he's an insensitive therapist to the, the woman who comes to him and she's trying to pour out her heart to him about the, the ways in which she's claustrophobic and she wants him to listen. And he just says, stop it! <laughs> just stop it! And, uh, and this is obviously not the way you want to counsel people. But this is often ways many people might read this in English. Don't be anxious. Just stop being anxious. Right? But Paul is not saying, stop it, in a Bob Newhart way. He is saying in the present imperative, this is to be an ongoing reality that you learn in your life uh, Dan Wallace, the standard Greek grammar, one of my professors in seminary, said the present imperative is used for habits that should characterize one's attitudes and behavior. 
John Henderson again, anxieties and worries cannot be resolved overnight. That takes an entire life given to God in faith, working itself out through love over time. It takes a growing knowledge of God and his grace in Jesus Christ. It takes a posture of repentance, humility, and waiting on the Lord. It takes a new set of desires based upon hope in the Lord and his promises. So the Lord would have his people not be anxious. But this is not an easy command. And this is the command that is harder for some of us than it is for others. But this is the exhortation nonetheless. And we are to be a people who believe the gospel and out of our faith in the good news of Jesus are to be a people who learn how to not be anxious. The exhortation then is that the Lord would have his people not be anxious. And to the negative imperative, notice how Paul then adds a positive imperative. And this is the invitation. If the exhortation is to not be anxious, the invitation is to a life of prayerful attachment to God. A life of prayerful attachment to God. Philippians 4, 6. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Friends, hear the truth that is being said in this verse. While anxiety is normal, this verse is telling us that a relationship with the living God can modify that experience. While anxiety is normal. A relationship with the living God can modify that experience. Paul says, your requests are to be made known to God. Who is God to Paul? Let me tell you, for Paul, God is not the man upstairs. He is not simply a higher power. God, for Paul, is someone that he relates to as his heavenly father by virtue of his union with Jesus Christ. Because Paul has a relationship with Jesus Christ, God is a heavenly father in our request. Paul says to his friends, the Philippians, come to God in our anxieties as those of a child to a capable and strong daddy. We come to God who is a heavenly father. This is how he has defined God in Philippians 1 verse 2 when he greets the Philippians. Grace to you in peace from who? From God, our father. For Paul, God is a heavenly father who is capable and strong for his people. And therefore, we are to come and prayerfully engage and attach to our Father in prayer. The means God has given us is prayer. Prayer is communication with this Father who belongs to those who are in Christ. And Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father is not only capable, but He is knowledgeable. He knows the things that frighten us. He knows the things that scare us. He knows the things that give you panic attacks. He knows these things before you even pray for them and ask for them. Matthew 6, that was read, uh, Katie read for us earlier. Our Lord Jesus says, do not be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles, those outside of a covenant relationship with God, seek after all these things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them all. You know, the Heidelberg guys in Germany, they got this right, didn't they? The catechism we read earlier, we are preserved, they said, and we said, in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Friends, you have a heavenly Father who knows your needs even before you ask. And the invitation is to come to him, to engage with him, to attach yourself to him. My um, eldest daughter is 13 now. 
And it's a joy to, to see her um, grow into a, a beautiful young woman. She's not here this morning because she is uh, doing childcare back at our church this morning. Uh, her name is, is Avia. She was uh, it's time in our life several years ago, 13, 14 years ago, um, when we didn't have any money. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we were trying to figure out how we were going to do life. I had um, one theological degree, and I was pursuing another theological degree. And the uh, career occupations for a theological degree are pretty limited. And, uh, and we were wondering, what are, we, what are we going to do? How are we going to make ends meet? And uh, in the midst of this kind of like insecurity in our own life uh, position, uh, my wife tells me I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. So now I have another one to provide and care for. And we came to this verse, Matthew 6. Where we were reminded that we have a Heavenly Father who knows this already. He knows our needs. And he invites us with thanksgiving and supplication to cry out to him, to attach to him. And so we named her Avia. Uh, Avia in Hebrew means the Lord is my father. And her name has been a perpetual reminder to our family that we have a heavenly father who is not only capable and strong, not only invites us to come to him, but who knows our needs even before we ask for them. Prayer is the spiritual comms equipment that connects believers to a loving and capable Heavenly Father. Now, now, prayer is the comms equipment that sometimes malfunctions. Sometimes the prayers don't work. Sometimes the prayers don't seem very efficacious against the anxieties that plague our souls. During the Iraqi war, there was a tragic mission that resulted in a great loss of lives called uh, Operation Red Wings. Several uh, U.S. Navy SEALs um, had been detected by some shepherds who were sympathetic to the Taliban. Um, they were allowed to, be, to go free, to be released, and uh, they immediately notified the Taliban. Within minutes, hundreds of Taliban were all over this team of SEALs. They were backed up into a mountain trying to defend themselves, and they pulled out and engaged their comms equipment. To, on the other side of a phone call was the might and force of the United States military. F-16 bombers, helos, other teams, Navy SEALs, Rangers, only a phone call away. And as they sought to engage their comms equipment, all they heard on the other side was static. There was nothing. And the result was a great tragic loss of life. All this power, all this force that could have come to their defense was out of range for them. And this is how many people, many Christians, feel about prayer. I tried that. I tried to pray. And all I hear on the other side is static. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. Why might this be? Why does the prayer not seem to work? Uh, well, there can be a number of reasons why that might be. But let me suggest two. Let me suggest two reasons why prayer doesn't seem to work for some of us. The first reason could be a lack of faith. A lack of faith. For some, maybe even for some of you here today, for some of you, praying to God is about as efficacious as making a wish list for Santa. You'll do it. You go through the motions, but you have very little confidence in your heart 
that such prayers are actually going to work, to actually be heard and responded to by Heavenly Father. And the reasons for this might be many. Maybe at one time you did believe that you had a Heavenly Father who knew and heard and would respond and move in response to your prayers. And perhaps you prayed something and God didn't grant it. And in your perspective, it didn't work. God didn't listen. God didn't move. So you gave up. Maybe you still claim Christ. Maybe you're still a Christian. When it comes to a life of prayer, you don't really feel that he's listening. What would we say to this if that's you? The first thing I would say is that faith is required. Faith is required to pray. You cannot pray to the living God without faith. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith always believes past what you can see. It always lays hold of truth beyond what your experience tells you is the case. Our prayers are prayed in faith. That they'd land somewhere in the heart of God and that he hears and that he knows. Our prayers must be accompanied with faith if they are not accompanied with experience. Um, Beethoven, the great composer, uh, composed many, much music. Uh, he composed the entire Ninth, ninth Symphony uh, while deaf. Think about that. The entire Ninth, ninth Symphony. He composed while deaf. Can you imagine the kind of faith it took for Beethoven to believe that in his own experience, while he just hears the thunking of keys, that in the real world something beautiful and magnificent and melodious is being played? I heard a testimony one time of a, of a man who had a near-death experience. And in his description... Uh, he, he, uh, he says he was in the, the hospital room going in and out of consciousness and he was brought to the very uh, edge of, of heaven where he met an angelic person, an angelic individual. And, uh, and as he was, was there fading in and out of, of consciousness, in and out of life and death between these moments, according to his testimony, these massive fireballs emerged uh, from somewhere and just slammed into him. And he said, at, at first I thought this was Back on earth, the, the, the paddle's kind of coming onto me and they're trying to electrocute me back to, to life. And then he said his guide, the angelic individual who was present next to him, said, no, 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 that's, that's not from earth. What those are are prayers. You see, because, because in, on earth, prayers are, are weak things. They're impotent things. But in this dimension, they're powerful things. They're strong things. They have import. They have force. Now, you may not think that near-death experiences are, are valid. You may have your own opinion on that, but it illustrates what the scriptures say are true. And that is that our prayers, supplication and thanksgiving, have a force and a power that is not always felt in our experience here on earth. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, David says. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry has reached his ears. So some of us, Prayer is not frequent and is not felt because we have a lack of faith. And God would urge you to a place of faith, accompanying faith in your prayers. For others of us, the prayer comms don't work 
uh, because we lack a habit. We lack a prayerful habit. And by this, I mean that we that Christians do not make use of set times of prayer. The times of prayer. Now, this is a, uh, not all your fault. Uh, many of us, all of us probably, are products of a Western secular world. Um, in, the, uh, in the Middle East for millennia, um, they have oriented their days around times of prayer. Uh, but in the Western world, we orient our days around meals. You know, three meals a day. And that calibrates our day. But in the Middle East, for millennia, across many religions, times of prayer, set times of prayer, define their life. And so for us in, a, in America, often there is a impression uh, that prayer only counts if it's spontaneous. It only works if you feel like praying in the moment. The glorious truth is that uh, we can be spontaneous. Because we have a Heavenly Father, because we have a relationship with this Father through Jesus Christ, we are able to, any time, any place, spontaneously cry out to God with thanksgiving for what He's done, with supplication for what we need Him to do for us. And yet, we have this impression that it should only be spontaneous. And all I can suggest to you that this is not only unwise, but it's unbiblical. That God's people have always engaged with supplication and thanksgiving, with prayer to a Heavenly Father as a habit, as well as something that struck them on the spur of the moment. Acts 2.42 tells us that the new believers in Acts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and not to prayer, but to the prayers. That they subjected themselves to set times of prayer so that they could learn, so their minds could traffic in the patterns of supplication and thanksgiving. And the idea that we should only pray when it strikes us to pray, or when we feel like praying, is really just weird because it's like nothing else you do in your life that's worthwhile. Right? No, None of you tell your kids, um, you know, do your homework when you feel like it. None of you say, well, I'll clock in the work this morning if I feel like it. At least I hope you don't. Why would we think prayer would be something that we would only do when we feel like it? For some of us, the prayer comms don't work because when we need them most, we are unpracticed and the habit isn't there. Uh, friends, there is no vaccine for anxiety. Only a natural immunity built up from a mind that has habitually trafficked in supplication and thanksgiving is able to withstand the assaults of anxiety. So I would encourage you, if that's you, make full use and exploit set times of prayer in your life. Before workday starts and you clock in, before the kids have to go to school, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Open your word and pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. My wife and I, after our devotions, we pray together every single morning. If you have a spouse, grab her hand, grab his hand. Pray and ask, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done this morning on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, have set times of prayer as a family for family worship. Lead your family in prayer around the word, around the table together. The Lord's days here at Redeemer are designed to lead you through set times of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication are all prayers that are prayed in your church on Lord's days. These prayers over time condition and train the mind 
to engage and attach to a heavenly father with thanksgiving and with supplication. Come Wednesday, come the midweek manna. Hear God's people cry out. And our natural immunity to anxiety is increased because we learn and we condition our minds to relate to our God in these ways. So the exhortation is that the Lord would have his people not be anxious. The invitation is to a life of prayerful attachment to God. And then finally, in the last verse, verse 7, is a promise for us. A promise. And the promise is this. That the shalom of God will guard your soul. The shalom of God will guard your soul. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A New Testament scholar has a, translated this well. He says, God's peace will stand guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul paints a picture of God's peace as a garrison keeping guard over the Philippians' hearts and minds, protecting them from all assaults. Uh, the, the word stand guard is a really interesting word to me. Uh, it's the word frueo. Uh, defined as provide security, guard, protect, keep, to hold in custody, detain, confine. Um, we are we are reminded uh, that Paul, as he is writing this, is in prison, right? And uh, and not just in in, in prison, but uh, Acts twenty eight. If the if the context is Rome, uh, then he is awaiting trial. He's third year of his imprisonment, awaiting trial before Nero, who's come down to us as one of like the greatest madmen in history. Can you can you imagine uh, if this is in the early sixties A.D. It's about that time historically when the wheels start coming off of Nero and he starts like killing people, like his mom, like his wife. And here's Paul having appealed to Nero awaiting trial. He's on death row. If anybody should be anxious, it should have been Paul. Uh, There's actually been studies that have been done um, by activists who are protesting capital punishment and they've identified a new mental illness a few decades old called death row syndrome and they have identified this uh to several studies um the 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 impetus for these studies was that they discovered that men and women on death row going through a series of prolonged appeals and uncertainty about what the outcome of those cases would be, experienced a great deal of anxiety. You're <laughs> like, no duh, <laughs> right? Uh, they, uh, they found that many inmates, there were several cases um, of, of inmates, for whom the anxiety of how their trial would come out, and, and the potential that they likely would get life in prison, would actually have their lawyers advocate for execution, because they didn't want to deal with it anymore. They wanted everything just to end. So that's what came before the U.S. Supreme Court, Soulsby v. Balcom in 2001, that the onset of insanity while awaiting execution of death is not a rare phenomenon among those who are in death rows. United States v. Burns, it was observed that the death row phenomena being a result of a prolonged stay in death row is an unintentional result of the long procedures used in the attempt to assure that death penalty is applied only to the guilty. Uh, friends, this is Paul on death row who has every reason on the world to go insane. And yet the book of Philippians reveals a man who is incredibly optimistic, who is incredibly 
joy-filled and who is urging his friends to not be anxious, to not worry, and promising them that if they are a people who as they learn to combat anxiety with the weapons of supplication and thanksgiving, they will be a people who will experience what our English translations call the peace of God. The peace of God. What is this peace? That Paul promises will guard you and I if we prayerfully attach to our Heavenly Father. Uh, it's a peace that is ascribed as surpasses understanding. In other words, it, it defies what should be true of Paul's experience or any other human's experience. And the peace of God here is uh, something, it's a, it's a word, um, it's a word in Greek and, uh, and in Hebrew that is um, far richer than our English word peace can get around. Uh, what, is, uh, what is this peace that comes across us? Many of us, uh, peace is something like an inner tranquility or an inner calmness or an inner serenity. We, uh, you know, I think of Kung Fu Panda, right? Where he goes to Master Shifu and Master Shifu is just seeking inner peace, right? He just wants everything to be calm and serene inside. And yet this is not the peace that is described here by Paul. It is not an inner tranquility or serenity alone, but it is far richer and grander and better than this. The, the background to the word peace that is undoubtedly in Paul's mind is the Hebrew Jewish concept of shalom. This, this beautiful word described in the Hebrew language and the Hebrew thought that describes a world that is set to rights. It describes wholeness, completeness, safety, security, flourishing. Shalom for the Hebrew mind is not just an inner experience that can affect your outer world like Master Shifu has. Shalom is an outer reality that can affect your inner world. Shalom is a world put to rights by the great king. In the Old Testament, shalom, this world put to rights, is what marks the age to come when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, the world, in all its brokenness, in all its fracturedness, in all its terrifying dimensions, will be a world that is put to rights. It will be whole. It will be complete. It will be safe. Shalom is a world in which everything in it flourishes and thrives. It's a world that the prophets promise us will mark when the king returns and when he has set up his kingdom forever. We are told in Isaiah that there will be no more harm on his holy mountain. The lion is going to lie down with the, the lamb. There will be no more danger, no more harm. Uh, I heard of a, a, a zoo one time that actually attempted this as an experiment. And they actually found that it, it worked to put a lion and a lamb in the same pen together, as long as they are willing to replenish the lamb every morning. But this is not the age in which we live when we experience complete shalom. A world that is set to rights. And yet, and yet the conviction of Paul, the conviction of Paul, is that the first advent of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, which was surrounded by angels saying, peace on earth, goodwill to men, is that God has inaugurated in our world in the present the potential for a shalom that will one day mark the entire world when he returns. And you and I, through our union and faith in Jesus, 
have access to that eschatological reality that would be true. This is what Paul is thinking in his mind. This is the shalom, a world set to rights. That in this moment, chained to a wall, guarded by a soldier, awaiting trial before Nero, can set guard and protect Paul. And he urges the church to in the same way attach to a heavenly father and to experience shalom. This is uh, why the people of Israel today, I, I spent three months uh, in Israel as an undergrad student studying in the, the, the standard greetings of the, of the Israelis is shalom. We say goodbye and hello. They greet one another and depart from one another by saying shalom. Even, even with all the, the, the craziness going on right now in Israel, Israelis will still greet and depart from one another by saying shalom. By saying, we, we wish upon you, we hope for you. A life where God sets the world to rights. Where God makes everything work the way it ought to be. This is the hope of the Jewish people. And it's a hope that they await. But a hope that we recognize has come in the Messiah. Has come in Christ. Who said in John 14 to his disciples, The peace is not to come, but the peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Messiah gives this peace. So you see how the contrast between the anxieties that we experience and the shalom that is offered to us. Anxiety, as we've seen, is a normal experience in a broken world. Shalom is the normal experience of a well-ordered world under the sovereign hand of its king. And in the overlap of ages that you and I are living in, we can have access to that reality of the future world, the shalom when the world is put to rights and the anticipation that one day the world will be completely put to rights when our Lord returns. And in the final phrase of this piece, the shalom that surpasses understanding defies our comprehension, guards our hearts and minds. And in the last three words, look at your Bibles, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And this needs to be said that this amazing gift only belongs to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, this shalom is not yours and will not be yours. And the good news of the gospel, as the Andrew Peterson summarizes it, the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing, but came here to live and to die as a man, son of God, son of man. The story of this one who has humbled himself to become a man, to take the death on the cross, and then God has exalted him so that one day he will reign forever and every knee will bow, every tongue confess. This good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ allows rebels who are lost in their misery, their sin, and their anxiety to become saved, to become forgiven, and to be entered, welcomed into a family where they can have a heavenly father who hears and knows and responds to their prayers. And I would urge you, if you've never given your life, surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do this today. You can do this by simply crying out, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Will you save me? And his promise is that he will. And if you have done this, if you do belong to King Jesus, and you've surrendered your life to him, you belong to him, this shalom is available to you now. 
through the weapons of supplication and thanksgiving? Will you avail yourself to them? Will you traffic in them? Will you make them a pattern? Will you make them a habit? Will you add to them the faith that believes that melodies are being played when you can only hear the thunking of keys? If you have belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ and you have given your life to him, attach yourself to your Heavenly Father in these ways. And let us permit the good news of Jesus to teach us, to teach us how to not be anxious. Let's pray. And then we'll close our service this morning. Father, we uh, exalt once more in the good news of King Jesus. We celebrate the one who made himself nothing. Who has promised to return and put our world to rights. Our world is a mess. And our hearts are a mess. And we take hope in the one who will put all things right and will do all things well. Let your people, as they await your son's coming, take heart and take hope in the God who loves and hears and knows the requests before they even ask them. Teach us to be an unanxious people who trust you, who rely on you, and find you strong on our behalf. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.